0: We are continuing in our series through the book of Kings. We've been navigating through this really dense historical book. And we've spent some time uh, delving into the life and the rule and the reign of King Solomon. And uh, I promise we're going to leave that uh, next time we gather. But I have one more sermon that I want to sort of uh, deliver to you from uh, First Kings chapter 11. Really focusing on all of the decline that happened at the end of Solomon's reign. And sort of what it teaches us. Uh, about God himself. Because you see, I think one of the surest signs that this Bible that you have in front of you is uh, not a sort of human invention, that it's not a a book that has been uh, created by man out of his imagination or anything like that, is the precise fact that throughout the Bible, uh, human failure is never glossed over. Uh, if you think about it, if you, if you were to flip through the pages of Scripture, you would also flip through just countless example after example after example of mankind's failure, of his ineptitude, of basically the horrors of human life are on display. Very clearly throughout uh, the Old Testament especially, there's uh, stories of extortion and, and bribery and lust and betrayal and revenge. <laughs> All of which I think often makes the Old Testament especially, but the whole of the Bible, sort of to read almost like a reality TV show more than anything else. It's just full of, of reprehensible themes and, and stories. And also too, what I think is also more, most evident is, is just the fact that the Bible is, is never skimpy on details of the blunders of even its best characters. So I'm thinking about people like Abraham or, or David or Peter or and on and on we could go. Sort of the, the, the best of the best, the, the people that we hold in most dear regard, they are also the ones that we know some of the worst things about. Their, their failures are on display. The, the ways that they were, were given over to sort of the brokenness of, of sin. And I think this is so contrary to human logic. Because our natural, uh, maybe I'm not going to assume this is you, I'm going to assume this is me. <laughs> my, my natural instinct is to be zealous about excusing or erasing or or explaining away my failure. I don't want people to, to know about it. I don't want people to understand how, how broken I am. And maybe you feel that too, or maybe you... You, you can't bear to think about your failures sort of being broadcast on like a PowerPoint screen for all of your friends and family to see. Let alone the whole world to read about them generations after you're gone. And yet this is exactly what happens in the Bible. <laughs> We're still reading about the failures of some of God's sons and daughters. We're still learning the lessons of the ways that they failed. Their worst moments have been essentially immortalized forever. And I say that to say because I think that's, to me, one of the clearest signs that this book, the Bible, is not human. It's it's divinely inspired. (laughs) We... (laughs) Just imagine that you have this book of Kings that we've been reading, right? It, it tells the story of, of why Israel is in the state that they are in. Remember, it's a book that was given to exiled Israelites as they are in the midst of or near the end of or sometime in the middle of the Babylonian exile. And imagine if it was sort of just a human history that was being given to them. It would be full of just propaganda to revive national patriotism. I'm sure that if it was just a human book, a human pamphlet, that David's sin would have been covered up. Solomon's uh, sort of decadence would have been examined in another way to sort of try to explain it away to sort of uh, get Israel out of blame. And yet, what do we have here? We have a story in which all of the failures of Israel's kings, all of their monarchs, all of their, all of their horrible decisions are left for us in this record book. Why? It's to show us something different. To show us a better story. You see, God gives a very clear reason why all of this disruption happens. We know we've been hinting at this. We're going to examine it in the weeks to come. How this once united, glorious, majestic kingdom is now fractured into tiny little bits. We're going to examine that this morning. Why does this happen? Well, God gives a clear reason. Notice verse 9 of chapter 11. The first phrase is so blunt. The Lord was angry with Solomon. Because his heart was turned from the Lord God of Israel, which had appeared unto him twice, and had commanded him concerning this thing. That he should not go after other gods, but he kept not that which the Lord had commanded. Wherefore, the Lord said unto Solomon, For as much as this is done of thee, and thou hast not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded thee, I will surely rend the kingdom from thee, and will give it to thy servant." See, God has a different story to tell. Not one of of mankind's ability to be good, but actually it's one of his sovereignty over all things. Times, peoples, places, events. I think what we see throughout all of scripture and what I hope to show you this morning is this God that we serve. This God who loves us is also the God who is the governor of all history. His fingers are in every single moment of time. It's to show... As Solomon prayed in chapter 8, that there is no other God like Jehovah. And the scriptures prove it over and over and over again. I think most clearly here in this chapter 11, where we focused on this account last time, I want to bring it to our attention this morning. And hopefully bring to your mind three lessons this morning that I think showcase God's Very unique, very unparalleled involvement in mankind's history for a very specific reason. I think lessons which are true even today. So first of all, uh, the first lesson this morning, a lesson about Israel's unnecessary pain. A lesson about Israel's unnecessary pain. Go back again to those words, verses 9 through 11. I want to read them once more. Because notice again what God says, and the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned from the Lord God of Israel, which had appeared unto him twice. And it commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he kept not that which the Lord had commanded. Wherefore the Lord said unto Solomon, for as much as this is done of thee, and thou hast not kept my commandment and my statutes which I have commanded thee, I will surely rend the kingdom from thee and will give it to thy servant." This is, of course, a very evocative passage, but one of the words that stands out to me is that word in verse 11, rend. Or perhaps it's, it's differently translated in your Bible. It might be translated tear. And, and it appears uh, twice more in verses 12 and 13 to sort of stress the weight of what's coming about because of Solomon's unfaithfulness. The precise fact that all of this that Solomon had built up, this kingdom that he had sort of ruled for almost 40 years by this point, as a punishment for his infidelity, God is going to shred this kingdom into tiny little shards. He's going to tear it apart. That's what that word ought to conjure up. Like you're tearing a piece of paper into tiny little bits so no one can put it back together again. (laughs) This is what's happening as a result of Solomon's indiscretion and the fact that he went after other gods. As it says there, that he did not heed, he did not keep all those things that God had commanded him. Remember as we were talking about all of the gold and the, the success and the splendor of Solomon's temple and his kingdom. All of that would be for naught because he had left this god. He turned his back on him, giving us a picture of a very dismal end to this once promising kingdom and rule. And I say though that it was unnecessary, because it's not as though Solomon wasn't warned. <laughs> We could recount several instances. You don't have to go there, but you can just jot him down. In chapter 2, verses 2 through 4, he's warned by his dad, David. On his deathbed, David is warning him, don't forsake the ways of the Lord. In chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, even right after Solomon is blessed by God with God's wisdom, he is warned, don't leave my ways. Walk in my statutes. In chapter 6, verses 12 through 13, as they're in the middle of the constru- of the temple God warns him that all of this is nice all of that magnificence is good but make sure you're walking in my ways in chapters 9, uh, chapter nine verses 1-9 through nine, he's even warned again by God himself walk in my ways it, you, you can't mistake the, the message that God is trying to convey to his king the king that he appointed that he anointed that he put in there in, for a specific reason Don't forsake my statutes. Don't forsake my commandments. If you walk in my ways, blessings will come. And if you forsake me, if you turn away from me, judgment is coming. Besides even those verses we could go to countless others in the the books of the Pentateuch. Especially books like Deuteronomy. Countless other scriptures where we could examine all of the ways in which Solomon should have known that the things that he was pursuing were not in line with God's will. All of which to say, it's a long winded way of just saying, this was avoidable. Solomon's decline and the disruption of this kingdom was avoidable. Which is also to say that Solomon chose to go after these ends. He made a conscious decision that he is going to go and serve other gods. As we sort of examined last week and we hinted at this morning through the scripture reading. That Solomon is choosing to entertain the influences of all of these wives that he had amassed. And all of the gods that came along with them. And it's not just that he's entertaining them, it's the fact that he's building these other gods houses of worship. Remember how long we focused on the construction of the temple and what that meant? It, it, jar, it ought to jar us and shake us when we realize that that same sort of process is what he's doing for other gods, <laughs> He built Yahweh a house to worship, and now as it says here, he's building the gods of Molech and Chemosh and all these other false gods, these abominations as the scripture says. He's building them houses for worship too. He is deliberately choosing not to follow God. He's deliberately choosing to go down a different road. To, as we said last week, compromise his devotion. And in so doing, all of this ruin that's about to come on this kingdom is instigated by him. He ignored the warnings. And therefore God is stirred to anger. Did you notice that word in verse 9? And the Lord was angry. A word that I think, at least it gives me a very hard picture of God, one that we are often not very comfortable with sitting around or, or thinking about or contemplating, especially when you realize that this word anger here, it means displeasure, yes, but it has this more picturesque meaning in the Hebrew, which means hard breathing, almost like you're fuming through your nose when you're trying to not get too angry, but you end up breathing really heavily through your nose and you're fuming. God is essentially fuming with Solomon here. <laughs> because he had turned from him. Notice. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned. It had been bent away from devotion to him. Devotion to the one true God alone. It too, it had bent towards this love of other gods. And we see like... This is not according to plan, so to speak. Not according to what God desired for the nation of Israel. Remember, we were trying to note and we've been trying to make very evident the precise fact that the blessings upon Israel were meant to be almost a mirror pointing to the God who can bless. It was meant for everyone, the surrounding nations, Israel to see, and all the nations that were around them to see, that this God, the only God, the one true God, Jehovah, he is a God who can give and give lavishly. And what happens here? Where they, where Israel was supposed to influence others to point them to the worship of the one true God, they are now being influenced in the opposite direction. See, this this turn of Solomon's heart is actually the turn of a nation's heart and it's a turn away from what God wanted and essentially we have to get this in our in our in our mind's eye that this is a dethroning of God. That's a serious case. God has been taken off the throne and other gods have been put there. So now Because of this dismissal of this blessing that God wanted to bless Israel with, we also have to note that just as it is in his ability to grant blessings, it is in his sovereignty to take them away. Notice notice again verse 11. Wherefore the Lord said unto Solomon, Forasmuch as this is not done of thee, and thou hast not kept my covenant and my statutes which I have commanded thee, I will surely rend the kingdom from thee and will give it to thy servant. God, we have to note, he's the sovereign giver and the sovereign taker. He can give us things and he can take them away. And all of it is for this precise fact that we would see that he is the true and the only giver. He is the only and the true one who blesses. Sometimes he does that in our lives. Sometimes God has to do that. He takes things away through the natural course of life. He will take comforts and conveniences and pleasures and friends and family. He will take them away for short periods of times or perhaps forever. But always this is something that happens You, when we don't give him another choice. Solomon had basically given God no other choice but to punish him. For the ways that He had turned away from God. And when we do that, you can be sure that God is going to intervene and interrupt our cozy little lives with a very demonstrable sign that He's still God. In Salma's life, it meant the rending, the tearing apart of the kingdom that he had ruled for four decades. I'm going to talk about demonstrable. God told him, hey, this is going to happen. You're going to lose your kingdom. All of, that, all of that magnificence that you spent so much time, all the businesses that you spent so much effort in establishing and, and making successful and profitable, it's going to be as not because I'm going to tear all of this kingdom into tiny little shards because you rejected me. You spurned me. You have acted as an, as an unfaithful spouse towards me, your one true God. All of this, again, is rather unnecessary. Solomon was warned. But so was Israel. Which brings me to point number two. Less about Israel's unnecessary pain. And secondly, a lesson about God's unceasing, unceasing patience. Because... One of the most fascinating aspects about this word of warning to Solomon here in these verses is the precise fact that as it's being given, there is a note of patience infused in it. Notice again. Notice verse 9. I'm going to read through verse 12. And the Lord was angry with Solomon. Because Solomon had turned his heart from the Lord God of Israel, which had appeared unto him twice, and had given, or excuse me, and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods, but he didn't listen. He kept not that which the Lord commanded. Wherefore the Lord said unto Solomon, For as much as this is done of thee, and thou hast not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded thee, I will surely rend, I will tear this kingdom from thee, and will give it to thy servant." Notwithstanding in thy days I will not do it for David thy father's sake. But I will rend it out of the hand of thy son. Notice. Did you catch that? The tearing apart of this kingdom would not happen in Solomon's lifetime. It was going to happen after he was dead and gone. After he had passed off the scene, that's when all of this disruption and misfortune takes place in the life of the nation of Israel. Only after he's gone. Which, to me, suggests two things. First, that up until his death, Solomon could have repented. That This was another warning. Another very demonstrable sort of, hey, look at me. I want to get your attention. perhaps. By that point it might have been too late and all these things that would well will eventually happen in chapters twelve and so forth would happen regardless. But even still, the opportunity for Solomon to turn back to his God was always before him. He prayed this prayer. You don't have to go there, but jot down chapter 8 of 1 Kings, verses 46 through 50. He prays for this precise thing, that when Israel loses its way, when it loses its sight of the one true God, God, help us to turn back to us. And when you hear our cries, forgive us. He knew. He knew that he could have repented, perhaps. But that leads me to the second thing that I think this suggests That this delay in this judgment I think also suggests that up until his death Solomon resisted every admonishment and encouragement to repent. That up until his death, he was sort of working through what all of these things meant. And that, yes, all of these warnings went ignored, they went unheeded, they were almost falling upon deaf ears as Solomon plunged his own life and all of the lives of Israel into corruption. And more than that, it's not just he ignored these words of warning from God himself. He even sort of dismissed even more obvious measures of God's discipline. I'm not going to read all the verses, but notice in verse 14 down through verse 22, we're given the story of of Hadad. Hadad, it will tell you, he's, he's a refugee of David's conquest, Solomon's father's conquest of Edom. He eventually finds sanctuary in Egypt. And then after a long while he returns to Edom after David's death. And he amasses a following. He, he gets a sort of band of, of soldiers together. And he begins attacking and harassing Solomon from the south. In verses 23 through 25 where it's told the story of reason. He also was a refugee who fled to Damascus during David's invasion of Syria. And there he set himself up as king. And then he too amassed a following, uh, sort of gathered some people behind him. He eventually makes an alliance with Hadad. And then he begins attacking and harassing Solomon from the north. And then in verses 26 through 28 we're introduced to Jeroboam. He was a servant in Solomon's court as it says in verse 28 that he was in charge of all the house of Joseph by Solomon's own appointment. And he had grown frustrated with many of Solomon's labor practices as we can note throughout this history that Solomon was using a lot of forced labor on the people. So you can see what God's doing. He's using pressures from without and even pressures from within to sort of get Solomon's attention. He's saying, hey, listen up. Look at what's happening. This is not where you should be. You're pursuing wrong ends, wrong things, wrong goals. And how does Solomon react to all this? How does does he respond to these conflicts? Notice verse 40. Solomon sought therefore to kill Jeroboam. And Jeroboam rose and fled into Egypt, unto Shishak, the king of Egypt, and was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. I take that to mean this, that Solomon completely misread what God was intending him to see. He sees this as a threat to his throne rather than the divine order of this God of all things to sort of get him onto his knees to see, yes, you are the one true God. Says he sees it as a threat and he, he actually wants to seek out justice and vengeance on this guy, Jeroboam. And how dare he threaten my kingdom? When? You want to know what's really fascinating? Go back to verse 14. Look at the first phrase. And the Lord stirred up an adversary unto Solomon. Hey dad. Jump down to verse 23. And God stirred him up another adversary. Reason. (laughs) These guys didn't just come up with these whims of fancy. To to, uh, sort of harass and annoy Solomon. Because they were mad at what his dad did. This is God stirring up these tribes to get Solomon's attention. It's God using history in order to drive his purposes in his people's lives. He's using these horrible consequences, these horrible events to get Solomon's attention. And he, he misses it. He misreads it. He doesn't sense what God is doing. He just senses that God is that this this man Jeroboam and these others are threatening his control. I see these events and I'm compelled to just see God's patience. Think about all these long years of of God, Jehovah, pleading with Solomon through this warning and that warning, through this cause and through that cause. And every single time, it's evidence of what? God wanted and desired nothing more than for Solomon to repent so that he could forgive. Yet through it all... As we could go to Ecclesiastes to prove, through it all, Solomon was stubbornly chasing after wind. That's that word there, vanity. That's what he was pursuing. He chased after it. He was sort of trying the limits of God's patience. I'm going to ask you that question. How might God be evidencing this in your own life? trying to get you to see that you've you've fallen off of his way and he desires nothing more than for you to see and to recognize and to notice that his patience is with you so that you might come back into the welcoming and folding arms of the father he wants you to see this morning That regardless of the life choices that you are making or about to make, this is a God who desires everyone to repent. He desires no one should perish. Because even while we push him away, as we often do, he's patient with us. He's pleading with us. He doesn't want to exact justice. The Puritans, I think it was Thomas Goodwin, talks about this. That this judgment and ju- justice of God is sort of this unnatural work. He doesn't delight in judgment. <laughs> he gives it out as a, as a father disciplining his children. He doesn't enjoy it. But a child through disobedience or rebellion has almost given him no other choice. And so it is with our God. He delights in mercy. But if we try his faithfulness, he will discipline. Which brings me to the last lesson I want to focus on. A lesson about God's unimpeded plan is our last lesson. Because I think one of the most compelling aspects of this Word of judgment is, is the glimmer of grace that's in it. And I think that that's a really hard thing to see. Again, go back to the image of the, the parent disciplining the child. And they say that off repeated line, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. And we're like, yeah, whatever. There is a glimmer of grace in all of our parents' disciplinary measures. And again, I think that's here. Notice again in verse 9, or excuse me, verse 12. So we have this announcement of judgment. This announcement that God is going to chastise the very people that he chose to bless. He's going to tear apart this kingdom. And notice verse 12. Notwithstanding, in thy days I will not do it for David thy father's sake. But I will rend it out of the hand of thy son. Albeit, I will not rend away all of the kingdom But will give one tribe to thy son for David, my servant's sake, and for Jerusalem's sake, which I have chosen. Hmm. So he's going to get rid of all of it except for one. I'm going to tear apart all of the kingdom except for not all of it. Because I'm going to give one tribe to thy son because of the words that I made and my covenant with David. I find this one of the most fascinating aspects of this entire scene. That for David's sake, God was going to both delay judgment and also entrust a little shard of this kingdom into Solomon's son's hands. Rehoboam, which we'll talk about in the weeks to come. This. The sort of lights ought to be going off because what's happening here is God is fulfilling. He's keeping. He's making concrete the promise that he made beforehand all the way back in the early days of David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. What's that promise? That David's throne would be established forever. And this is further clarified and the prophet Ahijah here in this, in this chapter, his prophecy. Go to verse 34, a little backstory: The prophet Ahijah, he approaches Jeroboam and announces what's going to happen. He uses this garment that he has on. And he takes this garment off. He rips it into 12 pieces, which is, which is to show what God is going to do to the kingdom. He's going to divide it into 12. And notice verse 34. In the middle of this prophecy that Ahijah is given to Jeroboam, notice what happens. Notice what he says. How be it, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand, but I'll make him prince all the days of his life for David my servant's sake, whom I chose, because he kept my commandments and my statutes. But I will take the kingdom out of his son's hand, and will give it unto thee, even ten tribes, and unto his son will I give one tribe. That David, my servant, may have a light all the way before me in Jerusalem. The city which I have chosen me to put my name there. See what's going on? Solomon had utterly failed to live up to the conditions of the Davidic covenant. If you can go back, if you want to, read 2 Samuel 7 verses 12 through 16. Solomon failed. He failed to uphold this sort of standard. And what's promised here, even in that failure, the light of Israel would not be taken away. There will always be a light, as it says there, in Jerusalem. Why? Because God has made that choice. He has made that covenant. He has made that promise. And God Always keeps his promises, even if or when we don't. And God always is faithful to us, even in if and when we aren't faithful to him. That's the truth of the gospel. And here it's evidence in even Solomon's life that even when he is unfaithful, God is faithful still to his end of the of the sort of the bargain, so to speak. He's faithful and true to his word, to the promises that he makes. He never breaks a word that he says to us. He always keeps his promises. By the way, even if it means he has to fulfill the covenant himself in his own person. You see, this is, this is the truth of the gospel, my friends. That The God who makes the covenant often and always becomes the God who fulfills the covenant on behalf of the very people who break the covenant. That's the truth. Of the gospel. This is God's way. This is what I think scripture has always been revealing. All throughout its pages is what? That the God who makes all of these promises and blessings. And he assures us that if we do these things he will bless. And then we fail and we break. And who steps up to fulfill that covenant? God himself. So imagine. Imagine as we hinted at earlier. You're one of the original readers of this history. You're an exiled and estranged uh, Israelite who is now made to recall this, this horrible uh, season, this horrible chapter in, uh, of the failure of David's house. You have before you this, this sequence of events and you're reading it and you're like, yeah, we're here now because of him. <laughs> We're here now, centuries later, because of the failure of David's son. You've got to be asking, how, how in the world is this in keeping with God's word? How is this, how is this part of the plan? Did, did God fail? Did God make a mistake in, in, who he was, uh, uh, in who he was promising this word with? Well, in short, I won't keep the suspense. <laughs> No, he didn't fail. Because you see, precisely even in abject failure, God's plans move forward. God's plans are never hindered by the failures of his people. This is sort of the truest interpretation of Romans 8.28. That all things work together for good. Yes, even through the rupturing of Israel's kingdom... You see, this moment, I think, is, is proof positive that God can bring anything and everything. He can bring good out of anything and everything bad. Because despite all of this, these horrible consequences that are going to come about because of, of, of the wounds that Solomon and Israel themselves sort of self-inflicted, God was not about to abandon his plans with them. And in fact, look at verse 39. This is one of the most astounding verses in this whole chapter. I will for this. For what? For all the infidelity. For all the unfaithfulness. For all the ways that you've turned away from me. For all of your rebellion. For all of this I'm going to afflict the seed of David God says. But notice but not forever. This is not the end of the story. Punishment is not the end of my involvement with you and for you. Punishment and retribution and and judgment is not the end of the sentence. This humiliation wouldn't last forever. Forever because there was coming a day when all of this division that Israel was about to experience would be redeemed. It would be rectified and it would be repaired and true everlasting peace would be established. And not just for Israel but for the whole world. Because you see this in verse 36 that light. That God is going to keep aflame in Jerusalem is none other than the person of Jesus Christ. He's the the true and the ultimate fulfillment of the light of Israel that never burns out, that never fades away, that never wanes. And he is the true Messiah and King who would assemble all of the outcasts together again. Notice, I'm going to take you to two places. Notice, Notice Isaiah, you have to see this. A prophecy that these in uh, exile would have had. Notice verse uh, chapter Isaiah 11 verse 10. Because notice what is being promised to the people of Israel. Yes, in their uh, exile. Isaiah 11:10, and in that day. There shall be a root of Jesse which shall stand for an ensign of the people and to it the Gentiles shall seek and his rest shall be glorious. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people which shall be left from Assyria and from Egypt and from Pathros and from Cush and from Elam and from Shinar and from Hamath and from the islands of the sea. And he shall set up an ensign for the nations and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together to the dispersed of Judah and from the four corners of the earth. All of the disruption that's about to take place where we have these two divided kingdoms, Israel and Judah, and they're constantly warring and they're constantly uh, fighting. All of this was going to be repaired by this one, the root of Jesse. It is Jesus the Lord. Amos says the same thing. I'll just read it. Amos chapter 9 verses 11 through 12. Write these down. In that day the prophet says. Will I raise up the tabernacle of David that has fallen. And close up the breaches thereof. And I will raise up his ruins. And I will build it as in the days of old. That they may possess the remnant of Edom. And of all of the heathen which are called by my name. Saith the Lord that doeth this. The remnants, the outcasts, those who are dispersed, Jesus is going to bring back together. You see, despite Solomon's failure, God's plans were still on track. They're still on schedule. And guess what? That is true today, right now. I, maybe I sound like a broken record, but that's okay. Because despite, we can see all the evidences of our world, so to speak, fracturing and failing and breaking and falling apart at the seams. That we're living at the fringes uh, and we're so paranoid and nervous because of all the things that we see in this life. And we can cry out and say, God, how is this part of your plan? And I think we're made to see. That God's plans have never been impeded by anything that man tries to do. God's kingdom is unstoppable. Do you think a pandemic can slow it down? Do you think political corruption can make it uh, delayed? Do you think who is in office can delay the coming of God's kingdom? No legislation can stop that. My friends, we have a God who uses history in order to show us what? That he is the God of all things and he stirs up adversaries in order to show us who he is. He stirs up seasons of drought and famine and sorrow in order that we would see that he is our one and true and only hope. That we would see that he is both Lord and Messiah. The king of kings and the governor of all history. Who rules nature and all of time and peoples and places. They All of that, they bow and they bend to the will of this father. This father who is seeking out to redeem us. See, that's one of the most wonderful things, that in this patience, in this plan of God, it reveals what? That he desires none that would perish. He is delaying judgment so that we might see that he wants us to turn to him. That there is repentance still possible and that there's a grace always available. Because this God who rules over history... The God who saved you. The God who redeemed you. The God who brought you out of the depths of your darkness and redeemed you into his glorious light. And this God is now enthroned in heaven. We need not panic while he is enthroned. (laughs) We need not fret so long as Jesus is king. And my friends, he's still king at this hour. There's never going to be a moment where that power is waned or where it's it's sapped out of him or from him. He is the God of all things. And yes, he will afflict for a season, but not forever. Because he desires to bring us back again. Like the father in Luke 15. He sees us. And he doesn't wait even for us to get to him. He runs out to embrace us with the arms of redeeming love. My friends, that's what are being extended to the whole world right now. It's the patient, redeeming, holy love of God that desires that none should perish This is what God is doing. This is what God has done. This is the good news that we proclaim. I asked again this morning, how is God getting your attention? You see it as an annoyance. Maybe it's something that's coming into your life that you see as a hindrance. That you see as something that should not be here. And may we have the grace to see that this is part of God's doing. To get us back on our knees and repent and see that there's forgiveness waiting for us. What is God bringing into your life to bring you back to him? It could be a number of things. Don't, don't reject it. Don't misread it as Solomon did. See it as the hand of God who stirs up peoples and places and times and events for the precise ministry of grace and forgiveness in the lives of his people. That's what he's doing. May you have the grace to see that this governor of history is the God of all grace who desires that you would come to him this morning. Let us bow our heads and close our eyes.